Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Amos chapter 6 verse 8 through to chapter 7 verse 9. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them, asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says no, then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, we do not take Canaan by our own strength. Sorry, did we not take Canaan by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you in, the way, in all the way from Lebo Hamath into the valley of Arabiah. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Well, good morning again and welcome. It is good to be back with you. It's a great privilege that I have this morning to open the word as we come to our next section in the book of Amos. So I'd like to uh, invite you, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one. There's some at the back. If you have a smartphone that has an app on it with the Bible, I encourage you to open it to uh, the book of Amos as we continue this series, uh, The Unrelenting Roar. Uh, in case you're just joining us, uh, I've been away. I'm just joining you. <laughs> uh, my family had a great opportunity to go back to the U.S., which is where I'm from, in case you can't tell. And while we were gone for five weeks, uh, we were very blessed to have a number of people uh, come and faithfully 
speak the word of God to you. So I especially want to thank Pastor Chris, Pastor Stephen, and Phil Evans, uh, who was most recently pastor at Hawkesbury Valley. Uh, very grateful uh, to these men and thankful to everyone on staff and behind the scenes who was helping to help keep things uh, running smoothly while we were away. How are you finding Amos? <laughs> it's a bit challenging, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a good thing to get away. It's a good thing to step back. Uh, it's a good thing to put myself in your seat for a number of weeks. And I want to uh, just say, thanks for being here. It's, it's hard to get out of bed on Sunday morning when you're not paid to be there. <laughs> sometimes it's hard when you are paid to be there, but when you're not paid to be there, it's really hard sometimes to get out of bed. And so it's good to see you. It's good to, it's good to see that you're here. But I also want to, to encourage you, uh, in case you've got that God box or that church box kind of fully ticked, just, just put the pencil down for a second um, because being here isn't, what it's about really. <laughs> we're glad that you're here and, and we're glad that you've come. We're glad that you've come to worship and to celebrate with the Lord's people. But there is a temptation to think, and again, I was doing this a few weeks ago. Huh, I've made it. I'm going to sit down. I got maybe 30 minutes to tune out and just sort of let the dust settle in my life for a minute. Maybe they'll say something interesting. Maybe they won't say something interesting. And then I'll get to go home and have a nice relaxing day. But I've ticked the God box. You can't tick the box just yet. <laughs> and I say this because some of us, that's how we approach the book of Amos, or really any book in the Old Testament. Well, I've read it. Tick. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to do with it. Not sure what it has to say to me. Not really sure how it's relevant since Jesus has come. But hey, it's there, I've read it, I'm just going to sort of let it wash over me, tune out, and then I'll, I'll sort of perk up when we get to the good stuff. But as I heard Alistair Begg in a sermon recently, he said, when you try to either just read the Old Testament or just read the New Testament, you don't read them together, it's like going to half of a play, right? It's like a two-act play. You don't, if you don't go to the, if you only go to the first act, you're like, well, what happened with that? And if you only show up for the second act, you're always asking questions like, what, you know, why are they doing this? And why are they saying that? And, and what's this person about? And, why, what, and, and you're constantly trying to understand how it fits together. But we study the prophets because they represent the word of God to us, just like Jesus speaks the word of God to us. And it's not many stories we're looking at. It's one story. And so I invite you now to pray with me as we come to this text in Amos chapter 6, verses 8. Chapter 6, 8, verses 3 to 7, 9. Let's pray. Father, will you bless the hearing of your word this morning? May we have clarity as we come to it, not just about what you're saying in that day, but about what you're trying to say to us. God, would you help us, strengthen us through your spirit, we know that there is much in this world that would make our hearts cold. And so would you fire that flame in us again today? In Jesus' name, amen. Calling for judgment. <laughs> I have a 
uh, I have a Bible software program and, and I don't use this feature, but one of the features it has is you can like tap into a bunch of other sermons people have preached on it. Um, and I type in this text and I didn't find any other sermons on this. <laughs> so if you're like, gee, I've never heard a sermon on Amos. There's probably not many being preached. I'm sure there's some out there, but probably not tons. Uh, particularly this section. Uh, we come to Amos chapter 6, verse 8. We'll look at the back half of chapter 6. Then we'll look at chapter 7, the first half. And here's what the two sections have for us. Uh, the first section in chapter 6 is God's declaration of judgment to the people. God is finally saying the judgment is going to fall. He's been sort of hinting at it, warning them, intimating this is coming to pass. And here he finally declares it. Then in the second part of our message this morning, verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, we see three visions that are given to the prophet Amos. And each of these visions revolve around the coming judgment. But the big question that I want to ask this morning is, how should we understand God's judgment today? How should we understand God's judgment today? Not really a comfortable topic. A lot of us like to sort of push it out. I'm just going to give you some common ways that we tackle this. Um, one way we say is we said, look, uh, Jesus did it all. And, and so God's, God's not angry anymore. God doesn't have any more wrath. And so, you know, there, judgment was kind of an Old Testament thing. It's like a pre-Jesus thing. A lot of people say that. Maybe you hear that, you know. Sometimes when we emphasize the love of God, we do it to such a degree that we really push out any sort of view that God might judge because as a culture, we're becoming more and more uh, desirous of the idea that to love somebody is not to judge them. And so we look at these categories as mutually exclusive. We fail to hear the word of God in Amos chapter 3, which says, because I love you, I will judge you. It's a challenging thought. Another way we deal with this is we say, well, there's judgment, but it's just, it's entirely impersonal, you know, and God's effectively like this, this supercomputer, right? And you've been infected with the virus of sin, you know, and if you download the, the, the Jesus antivirus, he'll wipe your hard drive clean and you, you won't have anything. And, you know, it's really just a matter of upload, download, and, you know, but God's very impersonal. There's no real person behind this. It's just kind of the way things are. There's no, there's no being behind the judgment. It's just kind of this fate. It just sort of rolls on and on and on. That's another way we, we deal with this. But both of these ideas are going to be pushed against in this passage. Our big idea today is that God judges because he is righteous. God judges because he is righteous. In that, we say that God is a personal being. There is a person behind the judgment. He's personally involved in what he's doing. And he's doing it because of who he is. It's bound up with his very nature and character. And so if the God that Jesus reconciled us to, <laughs> the, the God whom Jesus is the perfect image and representation of, this is a God who judges. In terms of our outline this morning, I'm just going to try to ask two questions. I, I'm 
not confident that I'll be able to answer it satisfactorily for you. But this is, I think, what the text is trying to get at. The first question is, what kind of judgment is God bringing? That's what chapter 6 is going to ask. And the second question is, can God's judgment be averted? So what kind of judgment is God, is God bringing? And secondly, what can God's judgment be, be averted? In the first portion there, chapter 6, we're going to look at the motive, the measure, and the means of God's judgment. So the motive for his judgment, the measure of it, and the means. And then in the next section, we're going to see the intercession of God's prophet to try and prevent the judgment of God. By intercession, we mean pleading, Amos standing in the gap saying, God, please don't do this. By way of context, a few passages you may want to jot down. I encourage you to write these things down. Again, this is the Word of God. You didn't just come here to, to hear me prattle on. These are things that God has said that help build into place our understanding of what's happening in the book of Amos. So in Leviticus chapter 26, God promises His people. He says, I will break the pride of Jacob. He's laying out the blessings and the cursings of being in relationship with God. And He says to them, He says, if you... If you reject me, reject my covenant in pride, he says, I'm going to break that pride. If you want to look at a contemporary of Amos, relative contemporary prophet, Hosea speaks about the corruption of Israel. Sorry, it's not verse 82. It's just meant to be 4 to verse 8. And in that section, I'm just going to read a little portion of it for you. Listen to what the prophet Hosea has to say. He says, these people make many promises and take false oaths and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. He goes on to say, the high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It's the sins of Israel. It is the sin of Israel, excuse me. And then thirdly, if you really want to dig in deep, I encourage you to read this week, 2 Kings chapter 17. All of chapter 17 outlines the fulfillment of what Amos has been speaking about to God's people. But I want you to listen to what this says in verses 9 to 13. This is the description of what's been going on in the people that Amos is prophesying to. God's word says the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all its prophets, his prophets and seers. He warned them, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands in accordance with my entire law that I commanded your ancestors. This is what Israel's doing in secret. They're worshiping other gods. And so as you read the unfolding of this, the, the destruction that comes upon the city, this is why. So let's look at the text now and we'll try to answer these questions. Follow along with me. Amos chapter 6, verse 8, the sovereign Lord. Now note how many times he's called the sovereign Lord. The sovereign Lord is sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. God is now making a declaration to his people, and it's a declaration that he binds himself to. He swears an oath. 
This happens a few times, not a lot, but a few times in Scripture. We looked at one of them in the book of Hebrews. When God says to Jesus, he says, I swore by myself you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We looked at how much comfort we had in the idea that God made a promise on the basis of his own character. Well, here God's doing the same thing, but the promise is that he will destroy this city. He will destroy these people. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. Why would God detest these fortresses? What do you think? Well, it's not that God doesn't want his people to be protected. But we heard a little bit of what was going on in these fortresses from two kings. And if you think about it, the whole purpose of the covenant and the way it was laid out is that God wanted his people to learn to depend on him. And now, here they are, boasting in their military might, boasting in their defenses. And so God looks at these things and he says, I hate them because you think that in them you are secure. Effectively, their military allows them to live an existence in which they can push God to the very edge. They just push him out of you. This is not the first nor the last nation that would depend on its military might. It's easy. It's easy to say, yeah, I trust God, I love God, when in secret you're like, you know what, but man, I got all the means that I want. I got the money that I want. I got the power that I want. I'm really secure in my position. James would say that God opposes the proud he actually sets himself against those who are prideful. And here, God hates these fortresses because they look out on the landscape and they say, you know what, even if somebody wanted to come get us, they couldn't touch us. Then we have in verses 9 and 10 this really gruesome picture. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. Now, you might not recall, but a few chapters back when God was saying what would happen, he said, if you send out a thousand soldiers, a hundred are going to come back. And if you send a hundred out, only ten are going to be left. And so the next time the number ten comes up, it's in this passage, and in these ten people are left in a house. So they've already lost militarily, and what's going on in the house seems to say that there's some sort of plague happening. Because there's a relative whose job there is to burn the bodies, to, to get rid of the remains of anyone. And, and the suggestion in verse 10 is, if the relative who comes to carry out the bodies of the house, to burn them, asks anyone who's going to be hiding there, is anybody with you? He's going to say, no. And then he'll say, hush. We must not mention the name of the Lord. What a frightening picture. What a frightening picture. This ought to send chills up your spine. This is, these people are so terrified because they know their guilt. They know that God is executing his justice. And they're afraid if they even make a noise or even mention his name, that will draw attention to themselves and they'll be next. It's a terrifying thought. 
Verse 11, for the Lord has given the command, he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits, the mansion and the shack, the chalet and the tent. It doesn't matter which neighborhood, if it's gated or not gated. It doesn't matter if it's a 10-bedroom house or it's a one-room studio apartment. It doesn't matter. God's going to give the command and the whole thing's going to smash. Amos, at the beginning of the book we read, he's prophesying before a great earthquake came. So what do we learn about the judgment of God? We learn thus far that it's spiritual. It's spiritual. He sees to the heart. He sees their pride. It's not simply, it's not simply what they're doing, but it's the heart behind what they're doing. It's the core of their being. It's their sense of self. It's their, their very inner workings. That's the root of all of this. This self-inflated sense of importance that allows them to trample other people. And it's not only personal, this judgment, but it's going to be total in its sweep. As total as it is impartial. Now, why is this happening? Look at verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. God raises the question. He, he interjects with this question. He says, do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? This is meant to be sort of like a, an absurd image. I'm not a horse person, but I know some of you are horse people, looking at you. Uh, some of you are horse people, right? And, and I've learned a little bit, you know, for a horse, we put shoes on them so that they can run and they can, they can go on rough terrain. But you wouldn't imagine sending a horse up a rocky cliff. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. It's absurd. Even more absurd is... You don't plow the sea with an ox. <laughs> Could you imagine hooking up an ox to like this big, you know, this big plow and then trying to sit it out on a lake? <laughs> Let alone trying to actually plant or grow something there? It's absurd. It's, it, it, it's against the laws of nature that God instilled in the universe. You, you, horses aren't meant to run up there and oxen are not meant to plow on the water. And yet... You've turned justice into poison. The bitter fruit of righteousness, excuse me, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. God says, you wouldn't run up a rocky crag with, with a horse and you wouldn't plow a sea with oxen, but you guys, you guys have, have somehow managed to turn something that is good and beautiful and justice and righteousness and you've turned it into poison and something that's foul. God says you've somehow contravened the laws of nature, the laws of go governing social relationships, the laws governing how we're supposed to live and act. You've turned that so bad so that when somebody does the right thing, it's actually offensive. When somebody acts with integrity, it's a stench in your nose. You say, ugh, I don't like that. Would we know what that's like today? You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodibar and say, did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? There's two things going on. It's a bit of a play on words happening. Lodibar just means nothing. 
<laughs> like the name actually means nothing. And he says, you guys are throwing a big party because you've conquered nothing. <laughs> and this other place, our name is called strength. And they, but it's also referring to how far their king had extended the borders. You see, they were really proud that their king had really expanded the borders of their nation. And they'd gone all the way to these different places. And they said, look, this is, this is how far we have. We've gone all the way to Karnaim. God looks at them and he sees a people who don't think they need him because of their military strength, who in their day-to-day living totally overturn the ways that God has instituted human beings and the whole created order to function. And in their heart of hearts, they actually think they don't need God. Again, does any of this sound familiar? I mean, why would we read the prophets, really? What do they have to say to today, you know? I mean, we surely couldn't be living in a society that thinks it doesn't need God, could we? We surely couldn't be living among people who've turned righteousness into something that's, that's bitter and offensive, have we? we? We wouldn't know what that is like, would we? We, we aren't surrounded by nations that, that actually don't try to govern according to, to some sort of created order, but instead govern according to their might and power, do we? Of course we do. If you don't realize that, open your eyes. And if you do realize it and it's too confronting and it's too hard, pull your head out of the sand. We cannot ignore this any longer. We can't call right, wrong, and wrong, right. We can't throw our hands up and say, well, you know, I don't know. What do you think? We can't pretend that every single human being is his own or her own or whatever's own isolated, isolated entity of morality and justice and righteousness that somehow we are all governed and, and, and living according to our own standard. Do we all have volition? Yes, every single person. God has deemed it important that every person have the ability to think and decide and live and act for themselves. Absolutely, there's individual responsibility. But that does not mean that every person is entitled to establish their own set of righteousness, their own set of of, of morality, conduct, their own cosmos, if you will. All the while patting themselves on the back. And, and, and I get that it's hard, and we're going to come to some hard images in this next section. I get it's difficult to think of God as judging, but what else does he have left to do? I mean, seriously. He gave them his law and his word. They ignored it. He sent prophets. They ignored them. He sent disasters. Again, they're they're not responding. What else is left for them? What else do you do? At what point does God become responsible for allowing this system to continue? At what point do we start looking at God and saying, are you going to bring justice? Are you going to bring righteousness? 
That's what the martyrs are saying in Revelation. They're crying out to God and they're saying, God, how long? When are you going to do it? When are you going to set it right? People, friends, brothers and sisters, this is not the time for the church to put its head in the sand, to fold our hands in our laps, to say, well, nobody wants to listen to me, so I guess I'm not going to say anything anyway. Well, they're going to take away my platform, so... And it's not the time for the church to dance to the world's terms. I don't know what it's going to cost us. I don't know what it's going to cost us professionally. I don't know what's going to cost us socially. I don't know what's going to cost us economically. I don't know. But God looks to his people and he says, you are mine. And if you know Christ and belong to Christ, take comfort that Jesus said, I am with you. Do not be afraid of them. The Spirit will tell you what to say at the right time. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Just a few questions to learn from Israel. What are our fortresses? <laughs> what are the things that we've set up? You know, maybe you're running your life like a chessboard, you know? You're like, I'm the master chess player, and here's my life, you know? Do, 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 you know? I'm going to castle over here, you know, rook to bishop four and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and you're like, yes, I got my, I got this set up over here, and, you know, and I got my, I got my pension right there, and, you know, and I got, I got this relationship over here, and I got this, you know, this supervisor is going to back me there. And, and, and what, what are our fortresses? What, what are we hiding behind? Jesus says to his disciples, as he sent them out, he says, don't take a bag. <laughs> Don't take a wallet. <laughs> no, just, just go. What are our fortresses? What are, we, what are we hiding behind? Next question, what's our boast? What's the thing we really take pride in? What's the thing that we console ourselves with at night? What's the thing when we say, why am I even here on earth? What are we answering with? How do we answer that question? Why should I take a breath today? How do you answer that question? Well, I should take a breath today because I do that better than anybody else. I take a breath today because I'm indispensable. I take a breath today because look how important I am. How about we set the baseline that we take a breath today because God is good and merciful and he decided to love us and to bring us into this world and he is caring for us. How about we start there? How about we start with the attitude described in Ecclesiastes that says when you go to God in prayer, don't rush into his presence. Don't, don't, don't go in willy-nilly, but stop and take a moment and have reverence for the God who made everything you see and everything you know. The God who gave you every good thing on this, light, on this earth to, to enjoy. If you're a Christian, how could your boast be anything other than Christ? Why would we boast in anything else? 
Paul says, all these things that I did, all these good things that, that, that you could tag onto my name, everything that was there, Paul says, I count it rubbish. Throw it in the dung heap. It's actually worse than that. Paul's like, I don't want any of it. I would trade all that any day of the week, any hour, any circumstance, if I can have Christ. When good things happen to us, what do we do? We pick up the phone. Hey, mom, you're never going to believe what happened to me. <laughs> hey, sweetie, this is what the boss said at work to me today. Oh, hey, you'll never believe this. When good things happen to us, we open our mouths. How could our boast be anything other than Christ? Hey, hello, world. God saw me in my sin and my iniquity and my in, in my depth of despair and my purposelessness and my low purposelessness, my, my, my loneliness and my wandering. God saw me, saw me in all this and he came to me and he loved me and he said, I will pay that debt. Will you come with me? Will you turn and give your life and follow me? Why would I boast in anything else? Who cares what I got on the math test? Who cares what mark you got? Who cares what your salary is? You can't take it with you. Who cares how big or small your house is? Who cares how many kids you have? Yes, love family, but seriously, why would you boast? Firstly, in, for, in anything other than Christ. Is righteousness sweet to us? Confession, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. You see, my flesh has a seared palate. And there are things that make me convulse, that make me heave, that are bad for me that I somehow find palatable. And when God says righteousness is this, I say, ooh, I don't know if that, that, that's like taking medicine. But know that the Spirit of God has been given to you that you might learn to savor in the righteousness of God. He is bearing fruit in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These things are sweet. They're nourishing and they're life-giving. So, what about these visions. Verses 7 to 9 comprise the first three out of five visions in this, in this book. And they're in pairs. Vision 1 and 2 is paired with 3 and 4, but you have an interval in verses 10 to 17, so we'll deal with that next week. But there's a change between vision 2 and vision 3. We'll get into that really quick. So God has announced his judgment to the people. Here in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 1, he gives a vision to Amos. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up. This is like March, April. And so it's really their, their big vegetable crop and really anything left of the wheat crop. And God's preparing these locusts. And he sends the locusts, and when they'd stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. God's declared his judgment to the people. Now he shows a picture to the prophet. And the first picture is of locusts. Interestingly enough, this is one of the plagues that God inflicted upon Pharaoh in Egypt and the Egyptians. 
in the locusts, this devouring horde, they, they, they eat up all the food. And so really, it's, it, it's a sentence of starvation. And the prophet responds to this. He says, sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. What a poignant phrase. Forgive. That implies that Amos knows they're in the wrong. Amos doesn't say, they don't deserve this. He doesn't say, God, God, hold this back. They don't deserve it. No, he says, forgive. And he says, they're so small. How can they survive? God's prophet sees their vulnerability. What do the people see? The people see their fortresses and they think they're, they think they're impervious to, to anything. The prophet, God's prophet looks at them and he says, God, they're, they're so tiny, so small. May the Lord give us mercy to see how strong we truly are, how weak we truly are. Rich Mullins wrote a great song about that. I encourage you to go look it up. The second vision. Oh, sorry, excuse me, verse 3. So the Lord relented. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he forgave. It says he relented, which means he changed his mind. He, 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 he consoled himself, and, and he had a change of heart. This will not happen, the Lord said. Verse 4, second vision. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. Again, our second destructive force. This time, it's a, it's a consuming fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Now, in ancient Near East cosmology, there was an idea that, that the earth, that underneath the earth, it sat on this great kind of reservoir of water. And so below the earth is, is all this water. And then all the streams and rivers and oceans, they're filled from access to this, this sort of great reservoir that underpins all the earth. And so the vision that Amos gets is that fire comes from heaven and it consumes that reservoir. It takes all the water out and then it begins to come up and encroach upon the land. It's a cosmic destruction of fire that eliminates any water. No food, no water. Amos intercedes again. Verse 5, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. He doesn't say forgive anymore. He just says, stop. Please, stop. It's so visceral, isn't it? You ever watched a boxing match and there's a reason the ref is in there? Because there comes a point in time where, where the person can't defend themselves. And, and the ref comes in and he just says, look, you've already won. Amos is, is, is as if he's saying, God, stop. They can't defend themselves here. But the difference is, this is a punishment that is entirely deserved. But listen to what God says. The Lord relented. This will not happen. And then we come to the third vision. So again, these are just visions. God first threatens with locusts. He says, I'm not going to do that. Then fire says, I'm not going to do that. Third vision. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb. Now, we'll get into the vision in a second. You just need to know the word plumb and plumb line here, there's a lot of, de there's a lot of debate around it. There's an alternative. Your translation probably show what it is. I'll give you the alternative picture, but 
I think most of the English versions actually have it right. Plum, plum line. So here's the Lord. Now he's pictured. He wasn't pictured before. We had a locust storm and we had fire. Here the Lord is pictured, verse 7. He's standing by a wall that had been built true to plum with a plumb line in his hand. True to plumb means it's straight. Everything's straight. It all lines up. It's, it's, and then he's got a tool in his hand to measure it. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. It's personal. This judgment is quite intriguing, isn't it? Here's a picture now. God is standing by a wall. It's true and it's straight. You think about how God detested the fortresses that they had built. Here God's standing by a wall that's true and it's straight and he's got a plumb line in his hand. A plumb line is this measure that's perfectly, perfectly straight and true. He says, I'm going to set that plumb line in the midst of my people. But I'm not going to spare them any longer. Literally, I will pass by them no more. God says, I'm not coming again. I'm going to put this line right there. Some people think that's the prophet Amos. Amos is the plumb line because he's speaking God's truth. But what do we make of this picture? Here you have a people who were vulnerable, but they didn't know it. You had the Lord God who built this, who built this wall, and he's standing by it, and he has a measure that's faithful, and it's true. What happens if a wall's out of plumb? Falls over. Absolutely. Not only is it poor at protecting, but it's dangerous to those who are near it. But God's wall is straight and it's true. And he sets the line among them. It's as if he's saying, if you want to build straight and true walls, you'll build according to this line. But we know they won't. They'll be destroyed. God will stir up a nation against them. That's Assyria. So, is God's judgment averted? No, it's not. But it is altered. It is changed. One thinks of the intercession of Moses in Exodus chapter 32, where God is ready to wipe all of Israel out and start again with Moses. And Moses prayed, and God heard his prayer and changed his mind. I know some of you are already writing down your emails to me. You say, what about God's sovereignty and all his foreknowledge? Yeah, yeah, I know. But the Bible also presents God as a God who responds to prayer and intercession. And here Amos responds to these destructive forces and gets God to intervene and relent. But God says, but I'm still going to put my line among those people. Well, what do we make of all this for us today? How about this side of Calvary? This side of Calvary, just a few passages to, to note. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this. It says, if God knows how to save the righteous, thinking about taking it a lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if God knows how to, how to make sure the wicked get their judgment, he certainly can do that again. There is a judgment that's going to come, and it's going to be true. 
In Luke chapter 12, verse 19 and 20, Jesus told a story of a certain wealthy farmer who built up so much in his crops, he filled his silos to the brim, and he, he decided that night before he went to bed, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down these barns, I'm going to build bigger barns, and then I'm going to say to myself, self, it's time to kick back, take it easy, put on some Netflix, grab a Mai Tai, book a cruise, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus said to him, you fool. But what I want you to focus on is not his wealth. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you fool, do you not know that very night your life will be required of you? My life will be required of me. Hold on, I thought it's my life. You know, it's my life, right? No. Your life will be required of you. Jesus understands what's been true from the very beginning, that every single life is a gift from God. Every single life. It's not my life. It's not your life. At a fundamental level, that's why we don't murder. It's why we don't steal children. <laughs> our lives and our souls belong to God, and God says, I'm going to demand it back from you. What are you going to say? Hebrews chapter 1 famously starts with these words. It says, in the past, in various times and in various ways, God spoke through his servants, the prophets, prophets, i.e. servants like Amos. But in these last days, he spoke through his son. Jesus is God's final word. He's the last and true prophet. That's why we're not Mormons, people. That's why if you came to me and said, I found some spectacle glasses in my backyard and I'm going to, you know, I found these tablets, I'm going to say, sorry. <laughs> Jesus is God's final word. He's the last, the truest prophet. It will go on to say in Hebrews chapter 4 that he, his scepter will be a scepter of justice and righteousness. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 6 or 7. His scepter will be a scepter of righteousness and justice. Jesus is a true prophet who rules justly and righteously. Isn't this what the problem's been all along? We need this, don't we? If only, if only God would have sent this kind of prophet to his people. Oh, wait, he did. If only, if only there was a plumb line that wasn't just 10 words on a tablet of stone, but if only there was a plumb line that could walk and think and talk and interact and look into the eyes and raise by the hand and touch and breathe and do these things. If only there was a living plumb line put in the midst of his people. Oh, wait. He was. We're going to finish with these words from Romans chapter 11, verse 22. This is Paul writing to the church. Some are Jews, many are Gentiles. He says, Consider therefore the kindness of and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. 
If they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He's talking about the Jews. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own? Paul's saying to the Gentiles, he's like, hey guys, don't play with this God. Don't toy with him. Is he kind? Immeasurably. Is he loving? More than you would even begin to love. But to say that he doesn't judge, to say that he won't institute righteousness, to say that, well, you know, I've had this experience. God judges because he's righteous in the the people of Israel are walking with this God and their story is meant to be instructive to us. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and as they're coming, I'm just going to remind you of a few things. Number one, God is personally involved in your life. He personally cares about you. Your thoughts matter to him. Your attitudes matter to him. Your actions matter to him. Your opinions, not in some sort of random computer-generated printout of of a life, but, but he literally knows and formed and made you and loved you. God is personally invested in you. Number two, God sees everything, and he sees you as you truly are. Sees you as you truly are. Which brings me to my last reminder. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. If the Lord is correcting you back into righteousness, don't fight that. See, the enemy wants to get in your ear and say, oh, it's because he doesn't love you. It's because he hates you. He just wants you to do it his way. Yada, yada, yada. Lies. Walking by faith is trusting in the goodness of God and knowing his plan. Let's pray. Father, will you help us to receive what Christ has done? Lord, as we prepare to take communion together this morning, will you give us grace to come, to confess, and to lean in you wholeheartedly? For you alone are good. Thank you, Jesus, that we can have your righteousness because we've made a hash of ours. In your name we pray, amen.